Hi, and welcome to the Hollywood Dreammaker Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Gallo. I'm a 35-year veteran actor. I'm the kid who came out to Hollywood with 200 bucks in my pocket and a one-way ticket when I was 18. Didn't know a soul out here, and I've been living my dream ever since. I've had an amazing career. I've been an Academy Award-winning film, blockbuster film, hit TV series. You name it, I've done it, and I got the IMDb credits to prove it. Six years ago, I opened up my own school, the Manhattan Actor Studio, where I found my true passion. That's teaching the craft of acting, but not only teaching the craft of being the guy. Success leaves clues. I know how to make dreams a reality. I did it for myself, and I do it on a daily basis for my students. And I can help you achieve yours. Welcome to my podcast. Let's get started. I am super excited to introduce my guest. He is a writer, director, producer, painter, musician, a truly gifted artist in so many ways. He's given us such classic movies like Wise Guys with Danny DeVito and Joe Piscopo, Midnight Run with Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin, Bad Boys with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, The Whole Ten Yards, Middlemen, Local Color, just to name a few. His new film that he wrote and directed, The Comeback Trail, stars Robert De Niro, Morgan Freeman, Tommy Lee Jones, Emil Hirsch. I want to welcome the extremely talented George Gallo to the podcast. Welcome to the show. An honor to be here. Thank you. You know, first off, I got to express my gratitude because, you know, I reached out to you kind of out of out of the blue. I mean, listen, we both have the same last name, uh, you know, and uh I get stuff that pops up and I see Gallo, you know, I see that what you're up to and, and you popped up, I, I think it was with the whole 10 yards. And I was like, you know, I would love to have George Gallo on the podcast. And I think I reached out like through social media or some, something, but I never got a response. And I was like, how am I going to reach George? And then I apologize for that. I'm, I'm not the greatest social media guy. You know? No, no, no apology necessary. But then the universe works in mysterious ways. I'm literally cleaning out my desk and all of a sudden a piece of paper falls out and it says George Gallo. And I look at this piece of paper and I go, get the fuck. And I have this piece of paper that I don't know, maybe 30 years ago, you gave me a phone number and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if this number is any good, you know? So <laughs> yeah. I, I literally like call the number and you answer the phone. I go, George Gallo, this is Billy Gallo. We start talking, we're on the phone for 45 minutes and you were so generous with your time. And, and I said, I would love to have you on my podcast. And you said, done. And I was like, you know, it's, it, that's a rarity in this business. You know, you're a stand-up guy, you know, and you're real. And, and I love that about you. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Well, I, you know, I mean, uh, Listen, you know, I, I'm trying to think, you know, I'm going back through my brain and I was thinking, you know, how, how did we meet? Do you remember how we met? Well, we had some mutual friends. I remember you were doing a, a TV show, right? Universal. Weren't you or? or uh... Yeah, well, I had a few shows, you know, I was doing Who's the Boss with Tony Dance, but that wasn't That's what it was. It was, uh, you, it, you were doing Who's the Boss, but you were, I, somebody pointed you out to me a couple of times and they said, hey, you any relation to him? I said, no, we just have the same last name, but. The last time I saw you, which was 114 years ago, <laughs> I was driving into the entrance of Universal. It was in the afternoon. I, it's very funny. I, there's certain things like I can't remember what happened 10 minutes ago, but this <laughs> I remember very, very clearly. And I was driving in and the, it was late in the day. The sun was kind of going down like this orangey light. You know, that's the painter coming out of me. And you were walking on the right side of the car. And I rolled down a window and I said, hey, you're you're uh, 
you're Billy Gallo, right? And you went, yeah. And I said, you know, you and me got the same last name. And you went, what's that? And I always thought that was hysterical. You know, uh, I, I remember that really, really clearly. And, uh, but you always seemed uh, very nice and very open and, and, and just unfull of shit, you know, which I always appreciate. And uh, it, it always seems so bizarre to me that in a town of artists, uh, supposed artists, a lot of times, uh, that people are so guarded. And, you know, the whole point of being an artist is to not be guarded, mm. you know, and you have to be uh, free to fail and free to make mistakes and free to screw up and free to trip and fall down. And it's the whole process of being an artist, you know. And, uh, but, you know, you get a little gun shy in this town because people, uh, you know, they're always gunning for you sometimes, you know. So, uh, it's you know you learn to, to save that you know or, or or protect that in some way, and only uh, maybe be vulnerable with people you could be tr you could trust you know. Yeah. You know I've never you know being in this business and you know, I came out to Hollywood at eighteen with two hundred bucks in my pocket a one way ticket straight out of Brooklyn didn't know a soul out here. And, you know, I've been blessed and I, I, you know, I had this dream and I made the dream a reality. And along the way I've, I've met and I've worked with a lot of actors and, you know, I've gotten numbers and, but I've never been one kind of like a schmoozy kind of guy. Uh, yeah, me a kiss, neither. A kiss ass, you know, like, I mean, I have numbers that are people that I never called because I'm not going to just like, you know, call you because I want, you know, I'm looking for something. I'm, that's not just, I'm, that's not who I am. So listen, I created this podcast, one, to inspire young artists to follow their dreams. If, if you have a dream, you know, listen, if I, a kid like me can come out to Hollywood and, and not know anybody and make the dream a reality, um, if a kid like you can come out to Hollywood and, you know, become this amazing director, writer, you know, in this, in this business, I mean, A-list, you know, working with, you know, the best of the best, you are the best. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know the, the comeback trail, I mean, it's amazing how you made that dream a reality so i want to maybe go back to the beginning when did you know you wanted to be in showbiz you know it, it, it's funny i never you know i almost feel in some ways that i was guided at times you know i never you know it wasn't like you know like i was highly focused in one way in that i really wanted to make movies and i but what's odd is i never Maybe uh, by looking at my IMD page, IMDb page, you'd say, yes, he's definitely accurate. I never saw it as a career. You know, I saw it as just a journey that I wanted to make movies. And like there are people that are very career oriented, they're very career minded. You know, they make all these moves based on whatever. I just I never thought of it that way. I just always wanted to make films. and. And how do you get there? Well, I guess you got to go to Los Angeles. You know, I mean, I sold a few scripts when I was uh, in New York, but I'd sort of, uh, you know, I'd sort of burned through New York because there wasn't that many production companies and people hiring. Uh, and then I moved out to L.A. and I had like you said, you had 200. I was much wealthier than you. I had 800 bucks <laughs> in my pocket and, and I didn't know anybody. And I just landed here and I says, OK, I'm here. And then I just started, I got, I got very lucky though, early on, mm. I must admit, I, I got very, very lucky in that I landed a gig pretty quickly and that got me an apartment and I paid my rent, you know, and then I was writing and then I handed the script in and then it didn't look like it was going to happen, but then it actually, 
it got made. And then that I then suddenly I had a real check. Well, I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead, but uh, I, I was afraid to cash the check because it's really crazy. I walked around with it in my wallet for about a week when a friend of mine said, what's that check? It was a check for a hundred thousand dollars from MGM. And it wow. was like, I said, yeah, I was like, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm like nervous. This thing won't clear. And he goes, it's from, from MGM. It'll clear. Was this you for know? wise guys? Yeah. For wise guys. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that was the beginning, you know, that was 1980. Uh, I was still living in New York when I wrote it, I wrote it in 1983. And then I, I, uh, I came out to LA in 83 and then I just started knocking on doors with scripts under my arms. I mean, I really was like the, the fuller brush man, you know, I was just going back then it was easier to get on studio lots. You know, you could just pull up to the gate and sort of bullshit your way in. (laughs) And, you know, now they pat you down they put mirrors under the cars, you know, but then it was a lot different. So I just wandered around a lot. And uh, yeah. And then I met, uh, there was a little bungalow there where I ended up getting an office, which is so crazy. But I just, and there was Aaron Russo and Erwin Russo. They were two producers and Aaron passed away some years back, but uh, I just introduced myself and they were a couple of New York guys. I gave them my script. They said, who represents you? I said, nobody. So they weren't supposed to read the script. It's not supposed to, but I guess they got a kick out of me. You know, because they were hustlers just like I was at one time. And, you know, I was sort of an older version of them and they read it and they called me and they said, we want options. Okay, well, well, let's see. I need to rewind. First off, how many scripts did you write before writing Wise Guys or how did you get into writing or did you study the craft of writing? How did you like? Again, you you know, it's it's all very uh, sort of haphazard. You know, I was both haphazard and focused at the same time. You know, it was like... uh, I I wrote my first, I used to write a lot when I was already in high school. I was writing my own version of screenplays. You know, I was making movies with my buddies uh, when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. I bought a Super 8 camera, a sound camera. It was a GAF 805. I remember that because <laughs> Henry Fonda's GAF. And, uh, you know, I started making movies and with my buddies and blowing up model airplanes and, you know, uh, dressing up like soldiers. I mean, yeah, I was, thought I was, uh, you know, Eric von Stroheim when I was 16 years old. And I was making these movies, but like I said, the idea of doing it for a living, I wanted to do it, but I didn't know what the mechanisms were to get there. But uh, I wrote a script when I was 19 years old. I think I told you this when we first started. I wrote a script when I was 19 years old. It was a comedy. And I just wrote it, you know, and I learned the the, the structure or the craft from uh, it wasn't like today where you had all the stuff on the Internet. There was no Internet. You know, uh, sure. I went to the Writers Guild and I read a couple of screenplays. They let me. I mean, I was always like I was a little uh, I was always forward in that I would knock on doors. I never had any problem getting tossed out of places. You know, <laughs> uh, I was thrown out of many. But uh uh, you know, I, I read that. scripts at the Writers Guild. They let you read them like a library. They let you uh, sit there and read scripts. And I read scripts. I, figured, oh, I can figure this out. It's just dialogue. And, you know, I was naive. It's just dialogue and stage direction. And then, you you know, I, I was already a painter. I was already an art student. So I knew how to visualize stuff. So I would draw little pictures of how I saw it in my head. And then I wrote screenplays. But I wrote this one screenplay. It was the first one I wrote. And it was a comedy called Pros and Cons. And when I finished it, I thought it was pretty good. 
and I'm sure it had stuff in it that was good. I'm sure by if I read it today, I, I would probably cringe. But uh, I started looking through the New York City phone book to see if I could find, you know, like actors, you know. And I always say this as if Al Pacino's home number was going to be in the book. But I was looking and looking and looking. And I came across this one phone number that said A.J. Ornest. And that was Arthur J. Ornest, the cinematographer. And I, I, I have like an almost... You know, it's almost like autism. It's like I, I have this like, incredible memory for things. You know, like I see a movie, I can memorize the dialogue. I, I just, I've always been like a sponge, you know? Mm. And I know film credits very well. And I knew Arthur's work right away. I was like, oh, Arthur shot Serpico. And he shot, uh, you know, the Anderson tapes. And wow. A Thousand Clowns. He shot all these New York movies, Death Wish. <clears throat> you know, so I called him up. I think, well, what's the worst thing that happened? He hang up on me. So I called him up and I said, Mr. Roritz, my name's George Gallo. I'm 19 years old. I wrote this screenplay, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, all right, send it to me. So I remember he lived on 23rd Street and 10th Avenue. I sent him the script. He called me back about a week later and he says, uh, he goes, you're a good writer. I says, oh, thank you very much. He goes, you're 19? I said, yeah. And he goes, you're writing about middle-aged angst in this script. Because it was about one guy that just turned 40 and he was he didn't know what to do with the rest of his life. And he goes, uh, he goes, I want to meet you. So I met with him for lunch. And then, uh, you know, he was one of those three martinis at lunch kind of guy. <laughs> and uh, was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant cameraman, you know. Yeah. And uh, he said, you need a producer. And I was like, okay. And he goes, do you know who Marty Bregman is? And I says, yeah, he produced uh, Serpico, and uh, at the time they were doing Dog Day Afternoon, and he yeah. said, uh, and eventually like Scarface, all those big movies he did. So he said, I want you to meet Marty. So I went, okay. So then we got into a cab, we went over to Marty's office. Marty, Marty was like on 53rd in Lexington, something like that. And then uh, we went up and met Marty, I'll never forget, he was eating lunch when we walked in. You know, he's eating a sandwich and Arthur says, I want you to meet this kid. This kid's got a good ear for dialogue and characters. And, uh, and then Marty, uh, Marty Bregman said, uh, well, you must be good because this old son of a bitch doesn't like anything. And uh, he read the script and he called me about 10 days later. And he goes, I want to option your screenplay. And I was like, wow. okay, great. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I really didn't know shit. He said, okay, I give you some money. And then I own the screenplay for 18 months. Do you have an agent? I said, no. He goes, all right, well, then you need an agent. He says, go over to the William Morris agency. They're on 57th Street or 56th and blah, blah, blah. He says, a guy there, there's a guy there. His name is Fred Milstein. He's going to represent you in the deal. And I went, okay. And I was like, shit, I got an agent. I want to sell a screenplay tomorrow. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was pinch me. It's a dream. I went up to meet the agent. The agent said, uh, you know, Marty called me. They want to option your screenplay. So anyway, what ends up happening, they fly me out to Universal because Marty's deal was with Universal. I, I now live, it's really funny, maybe like a driver of three wood and a nine iron <laughs> to Universal. And I often think, you know, when I was a kid and I was a scared kid at 19, you know, that Someone would say to me, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. You're going to own a house on that hill one day. You know, the house wasn't even built yet. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, they optioned the screenplay. They gave me notes. They did rewrites, blah, blah, blah. At the end of a year, it came pretty close to happening. It never did happen. Uh, 
And that was my taste of being a screenwriter. Then I wrote several other screenplays that I couldn't give away. But the agent kept representing me. And then eventually I stopped. The agent stopped representing me because I just was striking out. I started doing a lot of, you know, jobs. I drove a truck in New York. I did a lot of, you know, non-showbiz work, which in retrospect, I'm grateful for, you know, because it toughened me up in a lot of ways. I think had success come back quickly, who knows, you know, you, you go crazy or something. But by the time I was 28, you know, I'd written four or five scripts. I couldn't give them away, like I said. And then I wrote Wise Guys. And then I came out to L.A. with it under my arm. And then I started knocking on doors. Those guys optioned it. And then the movie got made. That's amazing. You know, I love, you know, I love you had some big balls, you know, just to call some guy out of the phone book. And and then that led to meeting with Marty Bregman. I mean, just, you know, it's it's those it's it's taking that leap of faith, even if you are a scared 18 year old. You know, you, you how did you overcome the fear? Oh, I don't I don't think you ever overcome the fear. I, I just think you say the only thing worse than not, than than doing it is not doing it. I mean, for instance, if I could jump ahead like 50 years or 40 years, the movie I just directed, Comeback Trail, you know, which is supposed to come out in the spring. But it got it got it was we finished it two years ago. It was a uh, covid screwed up the release. But, you know, like. And even though I know these people and their friends, you know, you know, you wake up in the morning like I'm supposed to direct the movie, you know, and I'm supposed to be on the set 7 a.m. So, of course, I can't sleep. I sleep like two hours because I'm a nervous wreck. You know, then you wake up four in the morning and you're like, shit, I slept two hours. And then you're sitting on the edge of the bed and bed and you say to yourself, who the fuck am I? To think you could direct Robert De Niro, Tommy Lee Jones, Morgan Freeman in the scene. What are you off your fucking rocker? You know, but you have to do it. It's like it's you know, it's almost like, you know, if God puts you in that place, obviously you do it on your own. But if the good Lord helps you along, drops you in that spot, you're meant to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you show up on the set and you're, you you do your job, you know, but I don't think the fear ever leaves you. I think if you're not a little bit afraid, you're not doing it right. I know? love that. Love that. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Thanks. So, Plus so how, true. yeah, but you know, I mean, listen, it's, you know, that imposter syndrome, like who am I to be directing, you know, but, but, you know, like you said, you were put in that place because you were supposed to be put in that place. You know, God works in mysterious ways. He put you there. I believe in that. I do. And, and, yeah. and look, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not, I would not say that I'm uh, like over to over the top, like religious person, but I do believe that there's some creator that has guided me through all these years. There's too many times I went left instead of right. You know mm. that, I mean, yeah. I, like midnight run happens totally by accident. Uh, if you want to hear that story. Yeah, uh, yeah gonna, absolutely. Uh, you know, Midnight Run. Okay, so I wrote Bad Boys before Midnight Run, except that Bad Boys got made afterwards. Got made several years after, like six years, seven years after I wrote Midnight Run. But I sold Bad Boys to Paramount, and and uh, which later it, it went to Sony and wanted to turn around. But I, I'd met Marty Brest a couple of times, and I, I had a meeting with uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer, and Martin Brest had just directed Beverly Hills Cop, which was this gigantic hit, right? So he could do pretty much whatever he wanted. And I was walking through the lot at Paramount and I forgot some, I forgot my car keys. That's right. I forgot my car keys because I was walking out to the car 
because I had a tendency sitting down and things would pinch my leg. So I would take my keys out, my wallet out, my glasses, all my shit. And I'd leave, so I'd leave like this trail behind me, you know? <laughs> so I went back, I went back to get my keys. I mean, this is like, again, this is like fate, you know, and I'm coming back now. Had I not left them behind, as I come back the second time to go to the car, I meet Marty's walking through the parking lot, you know, and he goes, Hey, what are you working on? Marty says this to me. And I says, ah, you know, I'm working on this script about a bounty hunter and a, a mafia guy. He stole money from the mafia and blah, blah. I start telling him the story. He goes, this sounds great. And uh, he goes, I said, but I only got like 53 pages. And it's, it's because it, it, I, back then I wrote everything on, on, on typewriters, you know, uh, IBM Selectrics. Mm. And I wrote in legal pads a lot. I still write on legal pads. And, uh, Marty says, can I read it? I said, yeah, but it's only 53 pages. He goes, let me read it. So I went to the car. I got the script. I gave it to him. He goes into his office and reads it. So like an hour goes by. And I'm in the meantime, I'm talking to Whalen Green. I don't remember Whalen. Whalen is a phenomenal screenwriter. He wrote The Wild Bunch and he wrote mm -hmm. Sorcerer, the, the Billy Friedkin movie. And, and his office was right next to Marty. So like he was like one of these heroes of mine. So like I'm talking to him about screenwriting and, you know, you spend 10 minutes with these guys. If you're really listening, you'll learn more in, with 10 minutes than you would reading a million books, you know, because they're not only really gifted, they've lived it. You know, they've been, you know, they've, they've been bruised through the whole experience. So they're, let's say, properly uh, seasoned, you know, in terms of cynicism, they still have the dream and the love, but, you know, they're not complete mental cases, you know, so, but anyway, so Marty comes out. Oh, no, no. I, I mean, this is an old one, but I want to tell you something that Whalen told me. So I, I, I said to Whalen, I said, yeah, you know, I got this scene. I, I said, I kind of, I kind of borrowed it from me. Oh, what, what did you just say? I said, I kind of borrowed it from another one. He goes, no, no, no. Only amateurs borrow professional steel. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, said, okay. oh, I love that. So Marty comes out of the office. He finds me and he goes, this is great. How does it end? I said, I have no idea. I just know he lets it go <laughs> in the end. And he goes, okay, I want it. So I said, okay. So we went to Paramount and he said, look, I want to develop this script. And then he got me some some dough. And then I wrote the second half of Mid I Run and I handed it in. And then we worked on the next draft together. And it became the movie that it is, you know. So. Which is which is a classic. I mean, it's one of my favorite. I mean, you know, so many of your films are are, are my favorite films. I mean, I remember Very before come before coming out to uh to Hollywood, you know, I was like 17 or eight, right right before I came out and I remember sneaking into the movie theater. I'm sorry. I didn't pay for it. <laughs> the okay. Alpine, the Alpine theater in Brooklyn, which I used to go in and I'd sneak in and then I'd see every movie in there. You'd go from theater to theater, to theater you know? No, I snuck into many movies myself. The R rated ones. You couldn't get in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I saw, listen, I saw mean streets when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's when I was like, Holy shit. This is, I want to be mean streets kind of pushed me over the edge too. It's really funny. I, I, uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but go ahead. You say what you're no, going to no, say. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Good. Tell, tell me. Well, Mean Streets, you know, I always had, like I said, this affinity for movies and I was making movies and I was also painting a lot because I'm also an artist and I I couldn't figure out what I wanted to be because I love painting big landscapes outside and I was studying the Pennsylvania Impressionists and I, I was a big Andrew Wyeth fan. You know, I love realism and Impressionism and painting. Uh, and I was really 
really, really into it, you know, and I couldn't figure out which way to go, but that's another kind of fate thing. Uh, my friend had tickets to go to some Italian American festival in New Rochelle, and they were going to screen this movie Mean Streets. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to fucking go, you know. And he goes, he goes, come on, we'll eat some uh, pizza frites and uh, we'll see a movie. What's wrong with that? I went, all right, you pain in the ass. So I went and I looked at that movie and I was like, holy shit, this movie's something else. You know, it's it, it certainly, yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't know if it holds up, but it certainly spoke to us at that time. Mm who we were as Italian Americans kind of, you know, trying to pull out of the neighborhood. And at the same time, you're stuck in the neighborhood and then, you know, you want to get out, but you're defending it and you love everything. You also, you love about it. You also hate it. You also hate, you, you know what I mean? Like, you know, so nobody understands what you're talking about. You want to be an artist, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, I could tell you stories, but, but anyway, that movie really spoke to me. And that's when I really, I think, I don't know how old that was. That movie was like 73, maybe 1973. So I was 17 years old when I saw that 18, whatever it was, that one kind of kicked me in the ass a little bit to write, you know? Wow. For me, it was, um, well, when I was 11 years old, come a little boy coming home from the park in Brooklyn, all of a sudden I walked down my block and there was all these cameras and trucks and whatever. Universal Pictures were parked on my block. They they took a took over a bungalow. They created all these interior sets. And when they were filming a movie called Nunzio, and mm -hmm. Nunzio was with David Proval. Right. David That's Proval. He was like a special needs kind of yeah, guy. Yeah, he was. Yeah, special needs. He thought he was Superman, the whole thing, whatever. Long yeah. story short, I'm a little kid. I walk, I run down the street and I run up to Morgana King, who played Marlon Brando's wife in The Godfather. And I said, sure. What's going on here? She goes, We're making a movie. I go, How do you get in a movie? I want to be in a movie. So she she shows me a picture and a resume. And I run home and I took a Polaroid picture of myself. I wrote some stuff down on a piece of loose leaf paper, ran Hysteric. down the street. I handed her my picture and resume. And she, you know, she laughed. She got a kick out of it. She gave it to the director. The director said, you go home, kid, you know, get your mom, your parents. We're going to stick you in a movie. So I ran home. Ma, 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 they're going to stick me in a movie. She's like, you stay in the house. You don't know what kind of movie they're making down there. Long story short, I run down the street. I go, listen, my, mo my mother doesn't believe you. You got it. So I dragged the director to the oh, house. God, they, so, so I say, my, tell him, tell, he says, we're Universal Pictures. We're going to pay your son, right? So my mother says, you're going to pay him. Take him, you know? So I, I went so now I'm, I'm, I'm background, you know, I'm, you know, they needed some kids for the neighborhood, some atmosphere. And I show up to the set and there was a young actor by the name of Glenn Scarpelli. And he was, uh, he had a speaking role in, in the film and I was 11 and he was, you know, 11 and we looked identical. Like you couldn't tell us apart. So the day I show up, he's not filming that day. So when I show up to the set, everybody thinks I'm him. And they give me the chair. They powder my nose. All the extras over there, I'm playing along. They're calling me Glenn. I'm like, yeah. So I'm, I'm oh, playing along. I'm, 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 and that's when I got bit by the butt, right? So, yeah. you know, I, I spent a couple of days on it, but it was like my film school. I watched them film on my block for a month. I followed them to all the locations and everything. And I really watched this actor, David Proval. And I was like, you know, I, this is what I want to do. I want to be an actor. And then um, shortly after they were filming Saturday Night Fever in my neighborhood and I stayed up to four o'clock in the morning watching the scene when they crash into the Barracuda Club and there's a fight and the whole thing yeah, stunned sure. to the wee hours in the morning. It was magical, 
Travolta coming out of his trailer, you know, screaming girls because Vinny Barbarino's in town. And, you know, he gave me his autograph. And I said to myself at that point, I'm, I'm 12. I'm, I'm going to do this. You know, I want to be an actor. But everybody I told my 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 dream to, you know, kind of shit on it. Like, you know, there was a guy who gave my mother's business card and he said, hey, you know, I can help your son. Give me, a, you know, give me a call. Right. And I begged my mom, ma, ma, call him up, call him up. And she never called him. But, you know, she was a Brooklyn streetwise mother. She no, knew listen, she- I get it. You know, look, yeah. I made a movie about this and and uh, it's really funny. The movie, a lot of critics attacked the movie because they didn't believe uh, how strict those households could be mm-hmm. and how. Uh, and by the way, I say this lovingly. I don't say this with any animus in my heart whatsoever, but uh, I made a movie uh with Armin Mueller-Stahl and, and Ray Liotta. Oh, uh, Local Color. Yeah, and that yeah. was really me as a kid. That's and, a beautiful and, film. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that was really me as a, as a kid. And Ray Liotta knew my father. May he wow. rest in peace, both of them. Yeah. Yeah. Ray knew my dad. So my dad was so homophobic uh. that me holding a brush already freaked him out, okay? <laughs> like trying to paint, you know, he was just, what the fuck is this kid doing? And he, you know, and then when the, the old painter who was like 80 years old said, you want to go to Vermont with me for the summer to paint? My father was like, you ain't going into the woods with some old guy. You know, I mean, <laughs> I'm like, dad, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. And he's like, yeah, he didn't want to hear it. And he, he uh, we got, we got in a big fight about it, me and my old man. He just, no, you're coming to work for me. You're working at the club. You're not traipsing into the woods. You know, with your paint box and some old guy, you know, that ain't happening. He didn't want to hear it. And I finally was like, fuck you, I'm going. And I left wow. and I thought I, you know, I thought I was, I was gone all summer and I thought he wasn't going to be any, you know, I didn't know what to expect when I came home. Was I moving out? You know, but he he was cool with it. You know, I think he yeah, dealt with it. But, you know, so, but didn't you call that artist? Didn't you track down that? That was artist? another thing. I knocked on that guy's door. That was very similar to what happened in the movie. Yeah. He so wrote a book. He wrote an art book that I read, and there was an old. I mean, I, I there was an old framer, uh, a guy named Aurelio Yamarino, a, a real paisan, and uh, he was the framer in in town. He and so I, I made these shitty little paintings. I was so proud of, and he framed them for me. You know. And uh, the one that Charles Durning played in the movie. And so he introduced me to, he introduced me, he, he's the one that told me that the, the painter, whose real name was Cherapov, lived locally. So I went and knocked on his door and he didn't want to have anything to do with me. He should get lost. But then I went back to Yamarino and I said, hey, I said, this guy, uh, he threw me out of there. And he goes, well, he's, you know, he's an old bastard. He don't want to hear from you. I said, can I bring him a gift? He goes, well, he's Russian. Bring him a bottle of vodka. So <laughs> I went and I got some, you know, I really get now, I'm, you know, I took a few dollars from my old man. He did not know it. And I went to the liquor store and I bullshit my way to, into buying a bottle of vodka. And then I went to the guy's door and I knocked on the door and I gave him a bottle of vodka. And what's in the movie is true. He snatched it and closed the door. But then he opened the door and he goes, I'm just kidding. Come on in. So then I got to know him and he started showing me his paintings. And I said, you got to teach me how to paint. And he'd sort of turned his back on it. And uh, I mean, I understand why, you know, I mean, it. Uh, he poured his guts into those canvases. And, and and at one time they were worth a lot of money, but the whole world of art had shifted. It, it shifted uh, in the 70s, especially 
if you painted realistically, you were considered a hack. You know what I mean? It was all abstract, uh, you know, wipe your ass with a curtain. You know, that's, <laughs> great, that's a great statement. But if God forbid you paint something that looks, you paint a child's face that makes you want to cry when you look at it, you know, you're a hack, which is all that critic bullshit, you know, where they, mm-hmm. they literally almost destroyed the, the world of art as far as I'm concerned. And but it, now it's made this big resurgence and comeback, mm-hmm. not to the point where it should be. But anyway, yeah, a lot of that was all based on reality. Well, I mean, if, if, if people haven't seen Local Color, it's it's such a personal film. I mean, it is your life story. I, I think you you put your own money up for that, too, right? Yeah, I put the house up to make it because I kept yeah, it's a passion project. It was a passion project. And I raised some money. A friend of mine, Jimmy Evangelatis, and I, we raised a bunch of money, but we still needed like four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to complete it. So that's what we did. I put up my house to make it. Uh, oh. Listen, man, you know, like like Julie, my my wife, who encouraged me to put up the house. I mean, I've got the greatest oh. wife in the world. We've been together 38 years. That's amazing. You know, she's that like, was. you got to do it. You got to do it. She says, because we're both going to be gone one day and this movie's going to be left behind and you can inspire people 100 years from now. So she's always been just go for it. Just go. Stop fucking talking about it. Just do it. Just do it. She's always I got to God bless her. She's throw the dice, throw the dice. Let's go. Love that. Love that. Yeah. I, I have the same kind of why I've been with my wife 25 years and she's so supportive. You know, I went to New York for two years to produce a film and she was like, I believe in you. Go. <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. It's like uh, Julie. She uh, you know, you have to have a partner like that. You know, what's the secret? 38 years. Oh, I don't know. It's not like every 30, it's not like all 38 years, if you line them up, were bliss. You know, know, I'd say like the first 10 were good and then it drops off a little and then it comes back and then it drops off. Then you realize you're just marking time. Then you want to kill each other. Then you're back madly in love with each other. It's really how you handle tougher times than good times Mm. because any idiot can hang around with you when things are good. It's yeah. when things start to really come apart and they do, if you're in the movie business, you're on top for two years, you're in the shitter two years later, then you're back. You know, and sometimes you ask yourself, I was on fire three years ago. Who's cosmic dick that I step on that I <laughs> suddenly can't get a job. It's like, what happened? You know, and it's who your partner is at that moment that keeps you together. Yeah. So we've been together a long, I mean, forever, you know, uh, it's beautiful. So, you know, you know what I'm hearing in, in your your journey is there are there are a lot of big moves that you made. I mean, like you know, we're going through the phone book, finding that cinematographer, you know, reaching out to this, uh, you know, this this painter, uh, you know, looking to be taught by him. It's just those are big moves. Those are big bold moves to to reach out, and you really had to, you know, overcome your fear of you know like calling that person up or you know being rejected. So you know, it's it's pretty amazing. If I can impart any advice is, so what? They throw you out. So what? You know, you're really no worse off than you were five minutes before you went in there. So they tell you to get lost. I mean, you were a loser going in, you're a loser leaving. It's not like it suddenly, it wasn't like you were a winner walking in and you walked out a loser. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you're the same guy, same woman, same whatever, walking in as you are walking out. But the chances of winning increase Every time you take a shot, you know, it's like you throw the dice a million times and one time you throw a seven. But the thing is, I got to tell you, and I've learned this from a lot of the older guys. They used to say this. You only have to connect once or twice to have a Mm. career 
in show business. You don't have to connect a thousand times. You know, as a painter, you only need one gallery to really believe in you. If they believe in you, you suddenly you build a career. It's the same thing like uh, you make some allies in the film business. They, and you only need one or two folks to believe in you and you can turn everything around. Yeah. So, but you might have to meet 10,000 people to get there. So what? You get rejected. Big deal. Well, I got to tell you, I, I, honestly, when I, when I found your phone number and it, it literally hit my desk and I saw this and I go, wow, this number is like 30 years ago. I, you know, a little fear came in. Like if I call him, what's he going to say? Like, how'd you get my number? What the fuck are you doing? Call me. You know, like, I never understood so, that but, shit. But, but, but that's, that's, that's the thought, the fearful thought that came popped into my brain. And I was like, shut up. You know, yeah, what's good. the worst thing you, you can have do? to take, take a walk. You know, what, what's the worst thing that can happen is you can say no. Okay. You know, dude, I give you a shot. I gave you my number 30 years ago. You were supposed to call me. You know what I'm saying? It's like, if I give out my number, I have to expect someone's going to call. So it's not like, and I never understood that people acting like, oh, you know, get away from me stuff. It's like, I wouldn't be anywhere without people giving me breaks and taking chances, yeah. you know? Like, uh, so anyway, this so, whole you know, business is based on trust anyway, as far as I'm concerned, you know? I mean, like when I was at 20th Century Fox, I told Joe Roth, I really thought... I could direct the movie, you know, 29th Street, which was the first film I directed. And I know wrote- a wonderful film. If, if, if the audiences, if you have not seen 29th Street, it's it's a it's a beautiful film. I mean, it's 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 Joe Pesci, Pesci, Pesci's uh, true story, right? Frank Pesh, Frank, Frank Pesh, yeah, you know, Frank passed, Pesh, you know. yeah, I heard, yeah. So you know, Frank Pesh was a great guy. It's a true story. Uh, you wrote a film based on it, and it was such a beautiful film. It had Danny Aiello and and yeah, Anthony LaPaglia, Anthony LaPaglia, yeah, uh, Lainey Kazan, Robert yeah. Forrester. Such a beautiful film. Thanks, thanks. But I mean, look, I mean, uh, same thing. You know, I'll tell you, that's another one. It's like. You know, Joe Roth wanted to meet with writers. He wanted to give them a shot at directing. So I figured, well, you know, I I could tell you another story about uh, directing, uh, about taking chances. I don't know if it's interesting or not. But But the thing with Joe Roth, I just went in there and I said, look, this is how I see the movie and blah, blah, blah. And he gave me a shot. So so 29th Street was the first film you directed? Yeah, that was right after Midnight Run. Okay, so so I just out of curiosity, you know, you wrote Wise Guys. You had an amazing director, you know, directing it. How how is it for you as a writer, like to have to step back and then have somebody else take your baby and direct it? I don't really remember to be honest with you. I was just happy they were getting made. I was always shocked at how different. It was in my head in the way it got in- interpreted. Midnight Run, I was on the set every day, so it was much different. Marty wanted me there because he and I he wanted me there and he wanted me watching, which with me it was perfect because I wanted to be a director and a writer. So I just absorbed everything, and then every once in a while he'd say, "Give me a joke, give me a joke," and I'd come up with something off the top of my head, and that's how I got to know De Niro very well because. Can we talk about Bobby for a second? Sure, you talk about him all you want. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, before you you wrote Midnight Run, right? Were you a you know taxi driver, you know Mean Streets, uh, Raging Bull, Deer Hunter? Were you a fan of his work? Oh God, yes. Yeah. So so you know 
was he like somebody looked up to? I mean, I know for me, listen, I'm a Pacino, De Niro, Brando. Those were my idols growing up. I've sure. seen every, you know, all those early Serpicos and Dog Day Afternoons. I mean, those are the ones that inspired Serpico me. Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, yeah. I think I've maybe watched them both 50 times. That's yeah, not an too. exaggeration. I mean, you know, go back to Mean Streets. You know, I was in that theater and there was David Proval in Mean Street. He played the bar owner. And I was yeah. like, wait a second. That's the same guy who played... Nunzio and right. I real I really got like here is a completely different character and I was like I was in awe of his character and De Niro and all of that and that's when I said this is what I want to do yeah I mean, I in, the, in that movie theater I was like this guy can be, be that guy and then be that guy you know I knew I wanted to be an actor at that point yeah so working with Robert De Niro, which, you know, you looked up to and here you are now, you wrote a film and De Niro's the star of it. How, how does that? <laughs> well, I mean, again, look, I said, so, you know, you're making me think of things I haven't thought of in years. But I remember, <laughs> again, this is, I remember Marty Brest, I thought he was going to hit me and knock me off the fucking chair. I, I remember when he, when we heard that De Niro wanted to do the movie and he'd never done really a comedy before. You know, and but the whole thing that Marty and I always talked about was that Midnight Run is very, very funny, but it's not comedy in the way that like people are acting stupid. You know, it's played totally straight, which yeah. makes it even funnier. You know, so that was always the thing we were saying. So it was the situations that were funny. You know, the fact that, you know, he he had such a short fuse, the character, you know, that the Niro would just blow up, yeah. you know. But I remember when De Niro, I met him for the first time and we were uh, we were in his office, uh, Marty's office. He came in and we were sitting around chatting and Marty was behind his desk and Bob was sitting in this big leather chair and I was sitting in this chair. We were talking like this. I, but shit just comes out of my mouth. I don't think so. <laughs> and I said to him, hey, I got to ask you a question. And he said, yeah, what? I said, why do you want to do this? And he <laughs> And I looked over at Marty and Marty was like, like, are you fucking crazy? And I'm like, no, I just got to know, you know, like what? And he just said, no, he goes, I really like this character. And I like the way he, the, he's very, very angry all the time, but he's got a big heart, this guy, you know, he, he says, and he's, he's broken. And on the trip, he gets fixed, you know, and he mm -hmm. goes, and that's what I like about him. And he goes, it's very clear to me who this guy is. And I said, okay, great. And then Marty was like, what's the matter with you after Bob left? You know, <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't think, but I got to know Bob very, very well. And we then, you know, we would stay in and out of touch, but uh, I did, a, I did a lot of work. I didn't get credit for it, but I did a lot of work on analyze this. Hmm. I wrote a lot of jokes for that movie. I sat down with Bob and, uh, and uh, this is before Harold, Harold Ramis got involved as the director, but Bob would say, because I need some jokes. Just give me that stupid shit you write. And I went, okay. Uh, and I, and I wrote, you know, some jokes. I got a Bobby story for you. Okay. So young actor, I did pretty woman, Gary Marshall, Penny Marshall's doing awakenings. I audition. I'm in Palm Springs. I got a call from my agent. They want to screen test you for uh, Awakenings with Bobby De Niro. I'm in Palm Springs. I jump in my car, drive back to LA, you know, hundred miles an hour. I'm going to, I'm going to screen test with Robert De Niro. Yeah. 
So I get to, uh, I think it was Columbia. I, I show up on the lot. It's a Sunday. I get there and I'm looking for, you know, Travis Bickle or I'm looking for Jake LaMotta. And, and I, and I walk into the room and I get Leonard. And I, you know, I don't know if you remember, he's like, just very, Rich, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he's already like in character. He's like this shy, quiet, you know, and I'm like, who, you know, where, where's Robert yeah, And there he is, you know, and then Penny Marshall, she's directing and it was screen testing and I'm playing this, this cab driver that when he's sick, you know, he's trying to get him out of, you know, he's in a bad neighborhood and, you know, he, he, let me take you home, whatever the scene was. And, and so we're doing the scene and, uh, you know, De Niro, I go to pick him up in the scene and he lays there like dead weight mm. and he makes me struggle to pick him up. I mean, that's how, what a giving friggin' actor, that little moment to him just making me struggle. All of a sudden, everything became so real in that moment. No, and I he's literally, so smart. Yeah, I, I, I literally, I, go ahead. No, I, I'm not an actor, okay? And I never wanted to be an actor, but he wanted me to do a, a couple of lines in Midnight Run. And I'm like, I don't want to do it. I end up playing the cab driver at the end of the movie. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you, comedian? Get out of here, you bum. Yeah, that's. I had the second to the last line of the movie, but you don't see my face. But Bob kept telling me, you're funny. You're naturally funny. And I'm like, yeah. I I appreciate that. I said, but most of my comedy comes out of nervousness and discomfort. And so I say something that like a, to soften my own discomfort, you know, but I don't know. I can't manufacture it. You know, I don't know how to be funny, you know. So he said, I want, I want to read some lines with you. And this is the only time I ever read lines with, with anyone, and it was him. Wow. So he starts throwing stuff at me, and I and I was talking back, and I had the most bizarre experience. I've never talked to him about this, but it was almost like a bizarre kind of magnetism that he drew something out of me. I can't describe it. It became... You know, and I'm not into that. Ooh, I'm not into that shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, and you know, sometimes when actors talk about other actors and they start doing this and you're like, oh, shut the fuck up, you know? But he <laughs> definitely had uh -huh. some ability to look you in the eye and make you forget where you were and pull you into what you were doing. And I felt it. I definitely felt it. I mean, the guy really is fucking remarkable. Yeah, that's what he did to me. I mean, he pulled me yeah, into the scene in that one, in that little moment. And then I literally, I literally, he laid there dead weight. I, I picked him up and I put him on my shoulder and I started improvising. Come on, baby, I'm going to get you home. And I'm going to do the whole thing. And then finally, Penny Marshall yells cut. And I put Dinero down very gingerly. And he goes, he looks at me, he goes, that was good. That was good. And I literally, that was it. For me, I was, I literally floated out of that frigging casting office. Because, you know, I mean, I grew up watching him and here I yeah. am working with him. So for you, you say you know you're not an actor, but you know as as a director, did you ever study the craft of acting? I mean, how do you how do you know? There's so many different styles. You know, method acting. I know De Niro's a method actor. How do you work with actors? Um, how'd you learn to I work a, with actors? You know, it's really funny. I I have a very just I'm very sort of instinctive, and all I do is I look at what I'm and look. Part of my job of, of being a director is Boy, this is a long-winded, I don't want to put your audience to sleep. I have I wear several hats as a director. It's the, the because you're not, I'm not a dictator as a director. You know, I, I think that's just a mistake. I like to see what the actors are doing. 
I know what I would like it to be like, but a lot of times when actors start doing stuff, it changes it. And they find humanity in things that I didn't know were human. So I, as far as being a director, I just really watch. Mm. And I don't watch. And all I ask myself is, am I believing it? That's all I ask myself. Because if I believe it, and I, I with no, it's, it's in a funny way, all I, directing is not like, in my opinion, the best movies, it's not like being a, dictator it's like i want it this way and it's gonna be this you know it's i i just let it happen i just let it happen and i watch it and i all i'm very aware of is as a storyteller that they're the words blah 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 blah, blah you know and then there's the the deeper meaning even if it's a ridiculous comedy the the deeper meaning of what the scene is about and you could change every word in a script, but the thrust of it, what's underneath it, has to stay intact. When that goes, then you don't have anything anymore. But I know that the point of this scene is this person is trying to put one over on that person, and they don't succeed, but they break through a little bit, okay? Because later on, they try it again, and they don't succeed. And the third time they try it again and they break through finally because that person now trusts them enough. That's the point of these three scenes. So however, I mean, however it gets there, that's all I ultimately care about. I'm not a director that like has to hear his dialogue exactly the way it was written in a very masturbatory kind of way. Although it's funny, and I'm not just saying this, De Niro has said to me, he loves the way I write dialogue because he said it always comes off very real mm. and he likes the rhythms. And I don't do a lot of rewriting of my dialogue because I find the more you rewrite the dialogue, the more it's your head and not your heart. I write mm. very reactionary. If if I know one guy's in a good mood and another guy's not in a good mood and the scene starts out with good morning. Oh, yeah. What's so fucking good about it? You know, if that's the response, I'll just take it off from there to see where it goes. And if I keep thinking, well, is there a funnier response? Or is it, you know, then I find it's like it's getting a little too bullshitty. It's getting a little too, aren't I, aren't I the writer? You know, aren't I clever? You know, as opposed to it, it becomes less and less real. So I tend to try to leave the dialogue alone unless, you know, I read through it and I go, ah, I could be stronger in here. It's a lot like music. I'm also a musician. You know, it's like hitting highs and lows. And wow. Here you want to go minor instead of major, you know, or something like that, you know. But I just, I hope I'm not going all over the place. I just try to, I just try to make it as believable as possible. I mean, look, sometimes you write things that are clearly jokes and setups for jokes like the 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 opening of comeback trail we shit that was definitely acted and spoken as written because it's just utterly ridiculous it's there uh, these two movie producers one of them is robert de niro he's it takes place in the 1970s he's a grindhouse movie producer he makes the worst fucking movies in the world and they're at the uh, the first day of killer nuns has premiered and there's a <laughs> 
and these nuns and priests are picketing out in front of the movie theater and they're they're talking about those picket lines and the, the dialogue in that scene is definitely set up set up set up payoff set up you know he he, he says this first time i've ever seen a such a long line going down in front of one of our films and then zach braff says it's a picket line you know and he goes well i i know that but i'm you know i'm just did you know that uh, it, you know when they first premiered the Rite of Spring, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring at the Champs Elysees in Paris in in 1893, that a that a fist fight literally broke out amongst the patriots? I mean, it was it was all set up to show that De Niro is just an optimist. No matter you could punch him in the face and oh, I needed that. He's just this optimistic guy. That's who he is. And you know, and it's uh, what's our motto? What's our motto? What are we called? Miracle motion pictures. And what do we say? If it's good, it's a miracle. I mean, so it's all this stupid setup shit, you know? So, uh, but anyway, I, I, so that movie, they followed the dialogue somewhat, but. I can't wait to see it. I've been waiting for it. You know, I know the, the, the uh, release date. Sorry. Yeah. It's very much, you know, it's funny people. I've shown it now. To, I'll show it to you anytime you want to see. In fact, you know, there's going to be uh, let's, I'm going to screen it at a friend's house. If you want to come to that screening, I'd love to. I'd love to. Love to come. It is very much a throwback to the 1970s style of making movies. Love it. It's very kind of loosey goosey. You know, I watched a lot of Arthur Hiller movies before I made it. Arthur Hiller uh, directed. Uh, a great comedy called The In-Laws. I don't know if you remember oh, yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with Alan Arkin and Peter mm-hmm. Falk. And Arthur, I knew Arthur really well. And he had a way of just allowing it and allowing it to happen. And he he wasn't afraid of the, the dead spaces, what one person might call today a dead space, a silence. You know, he played those silences very well. He allowed the actors to play them. And I love them in movies. I know today everything's got to be boom, 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 boom. But I just said, fuck it. I'm not making this movie that way. This is that time had not happened yet. You know, this is 1974 when the movie starts. And uh, I said, look, they dress like 74. They talk like 74. Stylistically, the movie's like 1974. It's not in a big fucking hurry. There's not a million different camera angles of a guy drinking a cup of coffee. You know, it's not that nervous kind of, which a lot of that grew out of MTV, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of TV commercial directors became directors were literally, you know, there's like 64 angles of (laughs) of a person getting out of bed. They get out of bed, the feet touches the floor, they creak to that, they put it, it's just, all right, I get he's getting out of bed. I don't need 64 setups to see this, you know. Working with De Niro, working with uh, Morgan Freeman, working with Tommy Lee Jones in that film, you know, they are, do they have different styles of acting or their approach they do. to it's the very, craft? very interesting that you would ask that. De Niro, well, they were all totally prepared. You know, each guy was totally prepared. Morgan doesn't like doing more than one or two takes. He, you ask for a second take, he wants to know why. And you can't say to Morgan Freeman, I I want to try something. He's like, fuck that shit. You know, he's like, (laughs) because he brings it. He really brings it. He brings it on the first take. First take. He nailed it. Always. And, uh, you know, those those guys are like theater trained too. You don't get a second take and 
on the stage. You know, yeah. they bring it. And Bob, you know, he brought it too because that was Morgan's energy. The interesting thing for me was, I never said this out loud before, Bob likes to play with it a little bit. You know, if he sees a moment, he'll try it. Tommy Lee Jones is incredibly methodical. Okay, like to the point where he will say to you, do you mind if I pick up the pencil on that line? And I'm like, no, just do whatever feels right. Okay, because I'm thinking I'm going to pick up the pencil, then I'm going to put it over here, and then I'm going to say so-and-so, and on that I'm going to look this way, then I'm going to come back, and then I'm waiting for Bob to say his line, and then I'm going to get the pencil on he he's so wow. methodical, and Bob's like the opposite. Bob's like, yeah, let's let's shoot, let's see where it goes, you know. So I I never said to Bob, hey, Tommy Lee has got this thing all doped out a certain way, and you know. So I just figured, you know what? They're two old pros; they'll figure this shit out on their own. And mm-hmm. if there's a little bit of this, so what? Yeah. I have the benefit of shooting it, so let's see where it goes and. They also liked each other a lot. So I think it it helps. But I mean, I think there, there's a lot of fireworks in the movie. You love know, I, I love the movie. Uh, I'm very, very proud of it. It is incredibly silly. So I'm hoping that by today's standards, uh, it, it's a lot of slapstick, but it's a lot of slapstick inside of a a more real grounded story. But it is almost like... A, the coyote and the roadrunner in a lot of ways. You know, do you know what the story is about? It's about uh, they're trying to whack the guy because they want to get the insurance money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> De Niro can't make a good movie. So it's almost like the producer. So he decides to, he owes so much money to so many people. They're going to kill him. All of his movies fail. He's got his issues. He can't pay his rent. He lives in his house by the airport. The planes fly over the house. Everything in the house shakes every time. because He lives right by the runway. So he's really at the end of his rope. He's not a bad guy. He's just desperate. So he, but Morgan Freeman is this gangster that's been financing these shitty movies. And behind Zach Braff, who plays, uh, does a great job. Zach Braff plays De Niro's nephew, who's totally in the dark. They hatch this scheme that they're going to heavily insure an actor and they're going to kill him in a stunt to collect all the insurance money. So, they go to the old actor's home and they find Tommy Lee Jones, who's like the, who was a great Western star like 40 years ago. But now he's suicidal and he's drunk by 10 o'clock in the morning. He's got a <laughs> six shooter in his mouth when they first meet him. They go, oh, he's perfect. You know, he wants to die. But what they don't count on is they give him the will to live again because he's an actor that nobody's paid attention to for 40 years. So he suddenly becomes like this young guy again. He becomes this like this heroic Western and they <laughs> and they can't fucking kill him. And they set fire to him. They throw him down this bottomless canyon and they start accidentally making a hit movie because they're shooting all of it, you know, for the insurance stuff. They got to be making the movie. It's really funny. I, I've been. I can't, I can't wait. Film festivals with it, and it scored. It scored. We had a uh, a screening of it in Toronto. It scored great. So I'm very proud of the movie. You listen. There's so many films, so many classic movies that you made. Uh, it's just. It's amazing. I can't. I can't wait to see this one. Thank you very much. So if uh, if you could give um, some advice to 
an aspiring writer or director or actor? What would that advice be? Well, I would say to commit to something like this, it, it it's really funny. I don't even think sometimes you have to be that great. I mean, I, I think to be successful, you have to want it more than anything in the world. But in order to be truly great, you know, you've got to focus on it. Yeah. But I don't think you can tell someone to be great. I think you could tell someone to be more serious about it or to be more open to it. But I think whatever greatness, whatever the hell that is, I think that's a combination of a lot of things. I think that's a combination of, ultimately, I think it, the artist is curious. A real artist is curious. A real artist is, will, is, is always willing to take chances. You're willing to fail. You have to be willing to fail because you are gonna fail endlessly. If you're doing it right, you're gonna fail. It's kind of where we started. You're gonna fail, you're gonna fail, you're gonna fall down and you can't quit. You can't quit. It's like anything in life. You just have to get up and you learn something from that failure. So it's not like a, a, if you fail a couple of times and you quit, it, you, it wasn't meant for you. You know, you have to just keep going. Look, if I was a, uh, being a director right now, it was much more difficult in a way for me than it is for people today in that you couldn't just go make a movie you know, like, well, now you can make movies on your cell phones. You could cut movies on your computer at home. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, when I was starting out, when dinosaurs, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, you know, when I started out, just to get your hands on a 16 millimeter camera and an editing system, and then you needed a sound guy, and then you needed a mixer, and uh, 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 you know, you needed a lot of people just to make a piece of shit you needed for <laughs> grand, you know, something, something god awful. Today, you've got cell phones that shoot beautiful images and, uh, oh. you know, you could color correct everything. And they, they, the, the whole production side has gotten easier. So you can show people what you're capable of doing easier today than when I was starting out. You know, I mean, when I, you know, when I directed my first movie for Fox, I mean, to think about my first movie I directed was for 20th Century Fox. It, I just had to basically bullshit them. You know, there was nothing they could see that I had done. You know, I didn't show them those Super 8 movies I did. I, I bullshit them that I could do it. I believed I could. It wasn't like I was totally lying. Mm. I mean, in the end, did I really 100%? No, no. But I felt if you dropped me in the right spot, I could do it, you know, you know, uh, and I saw it in my head and I'm also practical in that, well, if it doesn't go my way, then there's another way to rethink it. You know, um, a, lo a lot of directing, real directing is just troubleshooting mm. because there's a whole practical element to directing, which is you get a location and you got to be out of there today. That's it. So whatever you're going to do, you better figure it out in the next eight hours and shoot it, get out of there, you know. And if not, you're going to get a call from somebody saying what the hell happened in there. And then whether or not you're coming back the next day is in question, you know. So once you get that all straight in your head, you go, OK, fuck, I got to do this now. OK, so put the camera here, this and that and this. You block out the scene, blah, blah. You know, I always follow the actors. It's I don't I know what I want the movie to feel like. 
but I also don't want the actress to start doing a lot of artificial stuff because I think it's going to look good. Uh, so I always, I let, I let the actors play where do they want to go. And then I, I figure out how to sh shoot it based on that. But I have a, I have a, a, a look certainly that I've worked out with the cinematographer well in advance, you know, that, uh, like I did a movie, Middleman. I don't know if you ever saw that. Did you ever see yeah, that movie? Yeah, absolutely. You know, with Middleman, it was about the porn business, about cocaine, the beginning of the internet, Russian mafia guys. A lot of that was true. And I said, and I met all the people that it happened to. And these people are fucking nuts, you know? So I said to the cameraman, uh, uh, Luke, uh, Lucas uh, Etlin, I said, you know what? If they step in the dark, fuck it. If they leave frame, fuck it. I said, just chase them because... These people don't know whether to shit or go blind anyway. They're all over the place. So let's shoot it all over the place. They cross an eye line, so be it. They cross an eye line, fuck it. So that became the visual language of that movie. You know, and it wasn't, it was sort of a disciplined, undisciplined. They were undisciplined as people because I spent a lot of time with those folks mm -hmm. interviewing them. They were all over the map. So I think, you know what? If I try to stick them in a stagey environment, it's going to come off like bullshit. So that's, that was the approach to that movie. Each movie I try to figure out well in advance, what's, what, what, what's the, you know, what's the underlying theme of the movie? What's the, uh, like for middlemen, it was, cause I always try to find, yeah, it's a 120 page script and yeah, all of this stuff happens, but what's the movie really about? <clears throat> you know, each one to me, Midnight Run was about redemption. That's all that movie was about. Uh, yes, it goes cross country. Yes, this happens. That happens. It was about the redemption of Robert De Niro's character and his letting down his guard finally and trusting this other guy that he grows to love over the course of that trip. You know, with Middleman, it was just about a guy trying to find his way home. I mean, that was the whole movie. I mean, look at the movie. He starts out, he walks out the door of his house and then the whole movie is a flashback. And at the end, he walks back in. His wife allows him to come back because she forgives him for all the horrible shit that he did. So the whole movie to me was like a big circle. He just wants to get back in the door. That's all he wants. He wants a second shot with his wife and family. So, so I thought, oh, well, now it gets easier. You know, it's like, how do, that's what the movie is. If that's what the movie is, then you start making decisions and choices based on that. They inform how it looks. They inform the lighting, you know, what, what's important in the story, what's not necessary. With acting, look, when you say, what would I say to young actors? I don't, I don't know what I would say to young actors. I would, I'm not, I'm not an actor. Well, I think you just said it. You know, you, we have honest, you know, yeah, they have a phone in their pocket that can create their own stuff. They don't have to well, wait for anybody. They should. And I would say a lot of times as for actors, it'd be great to be writers, too, and mm. create your own content. Because, look, I wanted to be a movie director before I wanted to be a writer. You know, it's and, and then so someone said to me, well, you got to be a writer first. I went, oh, I learned how to write. You know, so the one thing a writer has a leg up over an actor in that. You, if you write something, they have to deal with you. You know, with an actor, no matter how good you are, there's a lot of people coming in to read for that part. So you are a little bit up to the whims of other people. 
you know, a stupid casting director doesn't get what you're doing. A director's not paying attention. You know, sometimes you're the director and you, you know, you sit there and I'm not a big believer in 50, 60 people coming to read, to be, to be honest with you too. A lot of times I just, I say, well, who's right for this? Out of all my friends, I start calling people up because I don't really like the process, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've done it where you like meet 60 people in one day and you don't even remember in the end. Plus you're, you know, I don't know if you know Philip Noyce. Philip Noyce, am I talking too much? I'm so sorry. No, no, no. Philip Noyce, the director, said to me once, he goes, you're too nice a guy to be a movie director. You have to be an asshole. I said, yeah, I'm not that guy. You know, but I also, when actors come in, I just see these people and like they break my heart. They're like, I've been in this spot a million times. You're coming in to pitch a story. They're coming in to pitch themselves. They've been working on this scene. They want to get it right. Suddenly my, you know, their life is in my hands. I don't like that fucking responsibility, man. Mm-hmm. You know, and what if they come in and they're great, but they have a bad moment and they blow it and they they walk around the rest of the week going, oh, I did it so much better at home. And blah, 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 blah. I just, I hate that shit. I hate being in that spot. Oh, I thought of another interesting director thing. So that's why writing, I think, is a, if you could, if you're an actor, I would learn how to write, write yourself a one act play, a two act play, you know, write something that you could shine. And look what Chaz Palminteri did. Sure. There's a lot of people, you know, they write something for yourself. Uh, Sylvester Stallone. (laughs) Huh? Sylvester Sylvester Stallone. Stallone. He wrote a little movie called Rocky. That changed his life. Sidney Pollack, who was a terrific director, who I think sometimes doesn't get enough credit as to how good he really was. Sidney Pollack did, uh, Jeremiah Johnson, Three Days of the Condor. I mean, amazing movies, the way we were. When I was getting ready to direct 29th Street, and I knew him, I got to know him, I really respected him. I called him up and I said, do you have any advice for me? I'm going to direct my first movie. And he goes, yeah, let's go out to lunch. So we went out to lunch and we're eating. And he says to me, I'm going to give you two things. I want you to remember them. I went, okay. And he says, Get really good shoes. <laughs> shoes. <laughs> what the fuck? He says, your feet are going to kill you. So I was like, uh, he does, you know, by day two, I was like, ah, you know, I had to get instead, all, all, all that special shit, you know. And the second thing he said, this is the good one. He said, let the movie tell you what it wants to be. Hmm. And I went, huh. He says, now studios don't like hearing that because they want you to shoot the screenplay. He says, but you can't just shoot the screenplay because you're going to be dealing with actors and actors are going to bring their lives to it and their humanity to it and everything they learned to it and who they are to it. And I don't care if they follow that scene word for word. It's going to change. Something's going to happen and it's going to get better sometimes. And when it starts to get better, that's the movie you have to chase. Hmm. Because if somebody says something funny or very human and you go, oh, that's a beautiful moment. He said, don't go, yeah, but that wasn't meant. Don't get into all of that shit. You got to be able to chase what the movie wants to be. It's very funny. It's the same thing as, was it, uh, was it Da Vinci that said that, when they asked him how did he carve all these things out of stone, he said it was already there. I just shaved all the pieces. Yeah, it's Michelangelo. Was it Michelangelo? Yeah. Okay. So 
it's the same thing. It's like, allow it to be. Yeah. It's there. It's, there. It it's already there. Let it be. Let it breathe. You Love know, uh, and don't be afraid to chase those moments. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a collaboration. I mean, you have all these amazing artists and, and, you know, to be a director that just says it's my way or the highway, or, or, you know, even if a grip has a, a funny line and, you know, if it's funny and it makes the story work, then why not? You know, dude, I watched the best directors on earth work. And I made a point of sitting there and just watching quietly and the great ones hardly say shit. If you ever noticed, you know, and the other thing about being a director is like the, like giving somebody a line reading, you know, like I was watching a scene happened on the last movie and I, I, I don't, I was watching it. I'm like, this, this is feeling really, really stilted to me. Now I don't want to tell people, you know, you need to be more emotional. That's like the worst fucking direction you can give. <laughs> and I was watching and I was watching and I said, you know what? It's going too fast. He said, they're not listening. That's what I said to myself. They're not listening. I said, I need them to slow down. Because the second I tell them to slow down, they're going to start feeling everything that they're saying. Mm. It's like a person going, da, 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 trying to, you ever like, like, you know, when a person doesn't want to take any responsibility for something, they start talking very, very quick. Like maybe mm. if I say enough words, I can fool this person. You know, I, so I told them, I said, guys, I want you to do the scene at half pace. They're like, well, I just, just slow the fuck down. And the scene was perfect. They did it. They were really listening. But I didn't say you guys aren't listening. Because to me, that's not that's not smart directing. No. You got to figure out what you want. And you got to find a very succinct way to get it without saying it. You know? Sure. So, yeah, you want actors to not get in their heads. You want them to be free. And in a yes. direction like that, they can be free to play. And and I think that's the secret is to be in play and having fun when you're acting. You know, when you're having fun, when you're in your head, you're dead. You know, I say when you're in your heart, you're smart. When you come from play and you're having fun, it's going to show. The audience, the people, the the casting directors, they're going to feel it because it's coming from from your heart and, and play. I'll tell you one other thing. There was an actor very quickly this is the only time that i can remember where i did something that i didn't like myself for doing but there was an actor who's a woman i don't want to give away who it is who came and auditioned and gave the best audition maybe that i ever saw it was brilliant and i knew when we came to shooting that scene that person was going to try to recreate what they did in the audition because they just for whatever reason, Saturn was over here. You know, the moon was over here. The tides, blah, blah, blah. And they nailed it. Okay. So now we come to shoot that scene. It was, we started around 10 o'clock at night and I could see this poor girl. She was struggling and struggling and thinking and thinking and struggling and thinking. And I don't shoot a lot of takes. I'm not that guy. I shoot two takes maybe. So then two takes, three takes, four takes. And in the scene, she's supposed to have a breakdown, mm. but she was thinking a breakdown. She wasn't, you know. So finally I said to myself, I hate myself, but I'm gonna have to wear her out. I'm gonna have to break her a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I shot 10, 11, 12 takes until finally she said, I don't know what to do anymore. And I said, now do it. <laughs> and she that. was genius. Because it was real. Out every filter, everything she had at that moment, 
she was ready. That's when you catch lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Love that. Listen, George, I I have to teach a class in a few minutes. Oh, sorry. I just scared the the shit out of my wife telling that story. Anyway, what? I was retelling a story. So, so I, I'm, I have to jump off and teach a class. This is a, this is a, my real school in the background. It's not a green God screen. bless you. You know, I, I opened it up eight years ago, so I have a two o'clock class. But okay. I just, I just wanted to thank you, George. You know, oh, no, really, my pleasure. From the bottom of my heart. I mean, so I know you're a busy man and, and it means a lot to me that you took the time to share your wisdom and knowledge on the podcast. And it's so great to see you and reconnect. I, I, same here. I'll do this anytime you want me to do it. If you ever want to come, where are you? Where are you? I'm, I live, well, my studio is here in Manhattan Beach. I'm at the okay. beach. I'm in oh, the okay, fine. Well, then I'd love to come see you sometime. You should come to the studio. I'd I love to love have that. You. I would love that. And let's let's do something together. Let's work together. I would love that. I, you know, I'd love to see that screening. Let me know about the screening. Yeah, yeah, that's in a couple, three weeks. I'll call you for sure. Okay. I'm going to write it down right here. All right, you got it. Got it. Okay. Thank you, George. You got it. Take God care. bless you, my friend. God bless. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. Please rate, review, share this with your friends. Subscribe if you haven't. Please take whatever you get from here, the golden nuggets, and apply them to your career. Go after your dreams with passion. Don't let anybody tell you it can't be done. I believe in you. Follow your dreams. I'll see you in Hollywood.